0: Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Article 225, Outside Branch Circuits and Feeders. Article 225, Outside Branch Circuits and Feeders. You'll recall in previous episodes, we had an article on branch circuits, Article 210, and also one on feeders, Article 215. But these two articles don't deal with those circuits that are external to a building, that is, leaving a building going to another structure, or the outside requirements for them, such as clearances. Articles 210 and 215 are concerned about how we electrically protect them, what kind of wiring methods we might use, where they need to be located, how to calculate them, etc. And so Article 225, Outside Branch Circuits and Feeders, is really more about the physical stuff that we need to do to make sure that we keep that part of the wiring system safe. The article itself is divided up into three parts. Part one, as you might expect, is general, has the general requirements in it. Part two deals with buildings or other structures that are supplied by feeders or branch circuits. And so they're not part of the same structure or part of the same roof line. And then part three deals with those circuits that are over a 1,000 volts. And so this too addresses things such as commercial and industrial environments where we might have uh, some substations and we've got a substation that feeds another building and then we get the... uh, the voltage requirements to what we need for that particular structure or building. All right, in part one, we have a scope. Article 225.1 tells us what the article is about. It says, this article covers requirements for outside branch circuits and feeders run on or between buildings, structures, or poles on the premises, and electrical equipment and wiring for the supply of utilization equipment that is located on or attached to the outside of buildings, structures, or poles. And so if we're just thinking about a feeder or outside branch circuit as going to another structure, that is only part of the picture. What if we have festoon lighting? Or perhaps we have uh, a farm loop, and we have several buildings that we're catching with some outside wiring, open wiring on insulators, perhaps. 225.3 is... uh, it's a fairly large table. We won't discuss all of it. And so if you have the code book in front of you, you can kind of peruse that. But it really tells us this Article 225 is not a catch-all article. It merely addresses those things that are not covered in the other articles that we have chosen for a wiring method or for the uh, part of the circuit that we're in. So part of that list, we'll just go through a couple of them. In your book it's going to be alphabetical, I'll do it more by topic. Branch circuit requirements are in Article 210, feeders 215, services 230, overcurrent protection, Article 240, grounding and bonding, Article 250. Conductors for general wiring, so to be able to size things correctly, Article 310. And then we also have a couple of actual wiring methods. Now, generally, in Article 300, we find that all of our conductors have to be in the same raceway cable, same trench enclosed uh, in earth. But there are two wiring methods that deviate from that. One is messenger-supported wiring, and the other one is open wiring on insulators, Articles 396 and 398. And so this table helps us point us in other directions where we might need to look as well. But back to Article 225. It starts with conductor size and support. If the conductors have to support themselves, that is, there's no messenger wire, for overhead spans up to 50 feet, they may be as small as 10 gauge. Now, for longer spans, they have to be 8 gauge. And we've got additional information 225.6a. If these spans are installed over a building, they have to have secure support. 225.15, which points us toward 230.29, gives us some rules. In other words, the rules are identical to service conductors. If we use a mast for support, it must have adequate mechanical strength, braces, or guy wires to withstand the strain caused by the conductors. Also, we cannot use trees or other vegetation for conductor support of overhead wires. That doesn't mean that we cannot put any wiring onto a a tree. Quite often we have decorative lighting, but we can't have an overhead conductor coming to the tree and supplying that. Festoon lighting is also highlighted here. Festoon lighting is a string of outdoor lights suspended between two points, commonly used at carnivals, uh, festivals, similar functions. Article 525.20 gives additional information. Festoon lighting conductors have to be at least 12 gauge, unless there's a messenger wire to support them. And so that's smaller than the general rule, which is 10 gauge. Overhead festoon lighting conductors must be supported by a messenger wire if the spans exceed 40 feet. That's 225.6B. How about the attachments? Well, the points of attachment for overhead conductors have to be at least 10 feet above finished grade. That's the absolute lowest that any of them can can be... uh, Uh, Supported at, but we have to remember that wires sag, so quite likely our point of attachment needs to be higher to allow for the sag of the conductors. I mentioned that 10 feet is the minimum clearance, that is, above finished grade sidewalks, platforms, or projections that are accessible only to pedestrians, and the circuit has to be 150 volts to ground or less. It's 12 feet above residential property and residential driveways not subject to truck traffic, for 300 volts to ground or less. If it's over 300 volts to ground, it's 15 feet. If we have public traffic areas, parking areas, truck traffic, driveways on other than residential property, those have to have a minimum clearance of 18 feet. What about pools? What if we have a feeder that goes to a shop in the backyard and we're installing a pool? Well, there, 680.9 kicks in, and we need and half feet for line voltage conductors above a pool. That might be a challenge to get that much height without a substantial support structure. How about roofs? Well, overhead clearances for roofs, and there's one difference here. And that is, if we have access to the roof, it's a flat roof. And uh, if we compare that with Article 230, in Article 230 it says 8 feet for service conductors. And most of the things are the same between the service conductors and the feeder conductors. But here it says for overhead clearances, we must have 8.5 feet in 225.19. And that has to extend out at least 3 feet from the edge of the roof. Now, if the roof is pitched, then we can drop down to 3 feet. And if we're using the the last exception where we come in from the side, generally we can get to within 18 inches of the roof line. And that's usually the exception that we shoot for. So conductors have to maintain vertical, diagonal, horizontal clearances around other objects. It's 3 feet from signs, chimneys radio and TV antennas, tanks, other structures. And that also applies to luminaires. So outside luminaires have to be kept three feet from platforms in similar locations as well. Conductors have to maintain a vertical clearance of at least 10 feet above platforms and projections that have surfaces that we could stand on and, and be able to touch or reach them. And that, too, has to be maintained for three feet horizontally from those surfaces. Additionally, we don't want to install conductors under an opening through which materials might pass or where conductors will obstruct a building opening. Raceways on exterior surfaces must be arranged to drain. So quite often we'll have a conduit that comes down the wall and then perhaps an LB at the bottom where it goes into the structure. Drill a little weep hole in the bottom of that LB and that will arrange it to drain. If we have more than one structure on the same property, quite often we'll have a feed or a branch circuit to each one of those. The general rule is that each one must be served by no more than one feed or a branch circuit, but of course there are exceptions, and they read very similarly to what we have in services. So some of the special conditions that we might have, such as fire pumps, standby systems, whether they're emergency, legally required, or optional, parable power production, systems for enhanced reliability. Sometimes we have special permission because the building is so large that we need more than one feeder, or perhaps we have uh, not enough room to be able to get everything under one feeder or perhaps the capacity is such that we have, and this would be commercial-industrial work, where we have a feeder that exceeds 2,000 amps. Or perhaps we have different voltages, frequencies, uses, etc. Now, for those industrial places, usually there has to be documented safe switching procedures for multiple sources of power to the same destination. We do have to provide disconnects. Logically, these would be near the point of interest of the conductors. We find those rules in 225.31 and 32. Now, at times, we can locate it elsewhere. If there's a documented safe switching procedure, it can be in other places or other locations. Also, it's not required for all things or all situations. For example, if we have overhead wiring that goes between light poles or light standards, A disconnecting means is not required within the site of each light pole or light standard that supports a light fixture or luminaire. Also for signs, we've got some specific rules in 600.6. So generally, we have to have a disconnecting means that's readily accessible and lockable uh, for each sign. But if it's not readily accessible or not within sight, then again, it has to be lockable. There are some exceptions there. And we've also had some changes in rules. So for example, if we have an outside feeder coming to a sign, and the sign is mounted on, on poles or posts that are hollow inside, we generally have to have a disconnect before it enters the sign standard. And so generally there will be a, a disconnect at the bottom of the sign base, and then the conductors may go into that particular tube that's carrying the sign. Again, those rules are in Article 600. A structure disconnecting means can consist of no more than six switches or circuit breakers in a single enclosure. If we need more circuits than that, then we have to have a main. So those are the rules that we find in 225.30 and 225.34. And of course if we have multiple circuits, we have to indicate what each breaker serves, or what each disconnect serves. 110.22 gives us direction on how to label up disconnecting means, and one of the things that's mentioned is that it has to clearly indicate the purpose of the disconnecting means. If the purpose isn't clear, then we don't know what it's going to disconnect. It can't rely on the transient nature of the occupants. In other words, something that's labeled build's office, in 30 years nobody knows who bill is going to be. But if it's something that is structural, northeast corner office, well, that's a reference that's likely not going to change. Now, to minimize accidental interruption to critical things, what might be critical? Well, a fire pump might be critical. Uh, Emergency standby power might be critical. Those disconnects are permitted to be located remotely from the normal power disconnect. And the reason for that is, A first responder, like fire department, they wish to usually shut power down to the facility, but we want to be absolutely clear that we do not want to shut things down like a fire pump or something that's keeping uh, a life support system online. And so oftentimes the code requires us to place those disconnects sufficiently remote from the normal disconnect, and it must be clearly labeled. You might ask, well, what does sufficiently remote mean? The code doesn't say. In most states, I'm recording this in Washington states, so that's my experience here, there's a plan review department. And for things such as schools and hospitals, those sorts of things get sorted out by the plan review folks. And so by the time that you and I get a print in our hands, uh, those decisions have been made. We're going to take what's spec'd out on the print and then the spec book we're going to install it at the location that's indicated there. So hopefully they've already figured out what is considered sufficiently remote. So if there's more than one feeder on a structure, a permanent plaque or directory has to be installed at each feeder disconnect location that denotes where the other feeder disconnects are located and what area is served by each of them. Article 225.37 gives us additional detail. Now the structure of the disconnecting means can consist of either a manually operated switch or a circuit breaker or for larger systems it might be something that's power operated. It could also be manually operated. It could be a shunt trip breaker. So those are all possibilities and again some of these things really apply to commercial and industrial installations. Now, a feeder or branch circuit, disconnecting means, has some minimum ratings. And these are the same ratings as we would have as if there were a service conductor. But it doesn't say here that the feeder must be sized to this rating. All it says is that the disconnect shall have a minimum opacity rating of these values. So a single circuit installation, the disconnecting means, must have a rating of at least 15 amps. Now, if our circuit is larger than 15 amps, of course, the disconnect has to be larger, too. A two-circuit installation, the feeder disconnecting means must have a rating of at least 30 amps. A single-family dwelling, that disconnecting means must be rated at least 100 amps. And for all other installations, the feeder or branch circuit disconnecting means must be rated at least 60 amps. again it talks about the size of the disconnecting means that's not necessarily the size of the actual feeder that's installed say you've got a pump house and you need a 40 amp circuit to it a 40 amp feeder maybe you have four breaker spaces inside of that panel your disconnecting means has to be rated at least 60 amps your bussing has to be rated 60 amps but there's nothing in the code that says you have to run a 60-amp feeder when 40 is sufficient. Now, you may have noticed that as you go through Article 225, the primary concern of that article is concerned with clearances, support of conductors, the ability or lack of ability to reach out of an opening or a window and grab something that is not inside of a wiring method, and also the disconnecting means that we have on the individual structures. But of course, there are other considerations. We want to be sure to review Table 225.2 and mentally walk through each of those articles, if they apply, to make sure that we've covered those bases. Now, one such reference is Article 250, Grounding and Bonding. So in a nutshell, any feeder or branch circuit requires an equipment grounding conductor. This is based on the overcurrent device size and table 250.122. Additionally, a separate structure or building requires a grounding electrode system to be installed and bonded to the ground bus in that subpanel. The rules for that are in 250.32B1. Now, the exception is for a single branch circuit. In other words, if you have no overcurrent devices at the outbuilding, There is no code requirement to create a grounding system at your destination. You generally don't have to take an equipment grounding conductor and attach it to a ground rod somewhere. But if we have a subpanel, then we need to create a grounding electrode system. Most often, that's going to be a couple of ground rods or a concrete encased electrode. 250.50 describes the required components of a grounding electrode system, and then 250.66 describes the sizing of the grounding electrode conductors. But we want to note that we would not bond the neutral and ground together at the separate structure. The neutral remains isolated, and it floats apart from the grounding system at a separate structure. So that's our overview of Article 225. It has many things in common with Article 230 services, the difference being that the service is supplied by utility and generally is not electrically protected like a feeder or branch circuit. Also, service entrances can have many different configurations and thus Article 230 is another monster article has a roadmap map at the beginning. Next time we'll tackle the overview of Article 230 and in subsequent episodes we'll drill down into the various components. If you found this episode on a site other than our website please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.